Amen. Good morning. It's all right. Um, I feel that way sometimes too. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I am the senior pastor here at Pulpit Rock, and uh, we started last week a three-week series in the book of Acts. Uh, we're calling it Fearless Acts, and we're looking at this whole idea that following Jesus should make us brave, and so we want to follow Jesus in ways that do. Someone sent me this quote this week from C.S. Lewis. He said, in such a fearful world, we need a fearless church. Isn't that true? I mean, how many times do we get reminded every week that we live in a fearful world? And God calls us to rise above and to be this fearless sort of church. Uh, we're looking at how the early Christ followers did that. They rose above their fearful world, and we want to do the same. I think that's a quality that I see here in our church, in our congregation. There's some fearlessness here, and I love it. I think it's something God wants to build upon, because sadly, as American Christians, I think we can be a pretty fearful bunch. We're known at times as people who are a little bit angry, maybe a little bit outraged. And I always mention those two together, fear and anger, because we know this, that they're in fact controlled by the same part of our brain. Our limbic brain controls fear and anger and all of those sorts of emotions. And they, they're like cousins. They always work together. And that's why if you ever meet someone who's like a really angry person, you know in their heart of hearts, they're wrestling with a lot of fear. They may not be in touch with it. They may just say, no, I'm angry, but there's fear present there. And that's all of us at times. We wrestle with fear. And the early church wrestled with fear too. And it wasn't actually until the Holy Spirit came in the early church that we start to see this incredible, resilient bravery manifest itself with them. And that's the truth we looked at last week, that walking with the Holy Spirit, it makes us brave. He lives in us, but walking with Him, He's going to lead us upstream to places we wouldn't naturally go. I want to talk about a place uh, that He wants to lead us today, a place that He led the early church, and it resulted in this sort of resilience and this bravery that people around them looked at and said, wow, and they marveled at it, and they joined it. And they became a part of it. So let's talk about that today. But first, let me start with a little bit of a history lesson. How many of you know what the Constantinian shift is? Does that ring a bell for anyone? I didn't know until I read about it, so it's okay if it doesn't. But it's in our history, so we probably, it's something we should connect with. The Constantinian shift. You can impress your friends later this week. It refers to something that began in about 313 AD, where the emperor of Rome, a man named Constantine, became a Christian. This was a big deal, and he issued something called the Edict of Milan, which I'm sure you've all read, but in case you haven't, let me sum it up. What he said was Christianity is no longer illegal. Rome had at that point freedom of religion, uh, but it was most religions, and Christianity was one of the exceptions. Like as long as you put Rome first, then you could worship whatever God that you felt like, it, however you saw fit. But for those first 300 years, Christianity was not on that list, and so they faced, uh, the early believers, tremendous persecution and tremendous social disadvantage and economic disadvantage because they followed Jesus. But those Christians were amazing. They were resilient. They were full of bravery, and they stuck together and they loved really well. And in 300 years time, their bravery and fearlessness won over the greatest empire the world had ever known up to that point. It was a watershed moment for us as a group, right? That was a pretty good day. 
About 70 years after that day, another emperor of Rome, at this time it was Theodosius, uh, he issued the Edict of Thessalonica, which may be less popular. You might not have read this one. Uh, what the Edict of Thessalonica did is it took what Constantine said a step further, and instead of just making Christianity legal, it made it the state religion of Rome. And now everyone in the Roman Empire had to bow their knee to Jesus. And if they didn't, it was now the non-Christians who faced persecution and tremendous social and economic disadvantage like the Christians used to. So this phrase, Constantinian shift, it refers to that 70-year period where during those 70 years, we as a group, we Christians, shifted from this persecuted group that was known for our radical love, 70 years later, we are the persecutors saying, follow Jesus or else. What happened? That's a pretty big shift, right? Now, this is a debate. Historians argue over this. There's multiple factors that go into this. I'm not going to be smart enough to resolve the issue totally for us today, but I do want to throw out maybe a couple of possible explanations or things that were at work. One, it may sound a little fantastic, but I think this could be something. When Satan couldn't destroy the church through persecution, he changed strategies. And instead of giving the church persecution, he gave the church power. And sadly, the corrupting influence of power was more successful at derailing us as a church than 300 years of intense persecution ever could have been. Now, I don't think I'm out on a limb here. I think that most history uh, would uh, testify to this, that Christianity, it just has not historically mixed well with power. That should give us pause because we recognize in America as Christians, historically, we've had a fair amount of power in this country. But you study our past, and this is absolutely true. The church has been much more pure and healthy when it has been on the fringe of society than when it has sat on the throne. And that has been proven true time and time again for 1,700 years. I wonder if that's part of what happened. The strategy of our enemy shifted. But here's maybe another explanation that I think is just human nature. This is true. When we have power and control, we typically don't have to love people really well. Or it's very tempting to not love them well. And it seems like, like the slowness, the, the patient sacrifice of the radical love of those first 300 years, it was quickly exchanged, or relatively quickly exchanged in 70 years for the efficiency of do it because we said so. And that become the, it became the narrative. And when we didn't have power, we managed to love people with like this bravery that won them over, that they were astounded with how we loved. But then when we got power, uh, we didn't have to do that. And the irony of power is it comes with a lot of fear. And as that fear crept in, we got a little lazy relationally. We relied on controlling people who disagreed with us instead of loving them. We didn't have to take the time to listen and understand and all that junk. I'm joking. It's good stuff. Um, but we had the might of an empire on our side. And we could use our authority to get what we wanted. And even for God's people, that was really hard to resist, wasn't it? 
And I wonder this, if just the lack of radical love that was present in our relationships, we just didn't have to love anymore, we could just force our way into situations. And so that's what we did. And it got me thinking about that first 300 years and just the way those early believers thought about their relationships, the way they defined them before they were on the throne of the world, when they were on the fringes of society fearing persecution, there was a way that they related to people that was so special that it won over this empire. And I wonder if... We couldn't get back to some of those ways of relationship if we would not see the same sort of effect in this empire we live in. So let's look at this, Acts chapter 6, and I want to show you specifically what I think was the make-or-break moment for this early church, or one of the make-or-break moments for this early church in their relationships. Acts chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 1 here. Here's what it says. In those days, so this, we started in verse 2, or I mean, sorry, Acts chapter 2 last week. This is a, a few chapters forward. The church has existed now for a few weeks at least. It says, in those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Let's pause right there. I heard one translator render it this, this way. He, he wrote, in those days, a dispute arose. A dispute arose. Let me make an observation here. These are people, for the most part, who saw Jesus face to face. They were uh, indwelt with the Holy Spirit. They were walking with the Holy Spirit. These are people who saw miracles, not like a miracle. They saw multiple miracles and still a dispute arose. Like that moment, we just have to acknowledge this right off the bat, that moment is unavoidable for God's people. It is. There's no way around it. And I preach it to myself here because sometimes I think, listen, if we're doing well as a church, then conflict should never arise. Like we should just, we all should just get along at church. That idea actually is really unbiblical. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. The Bible doesn't teach that there should be no conflict at church. In fact, the Bible teaches us exactly what to do when there is conflict at church. It assumes it. It assumes that a dispute is going to arise here. And here's what you should do when that moment happens. So there was conflict, and in this case, the conflict was between these two different regional groups, the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. Now, the Hebraic Jews, they would have grown up in Palestine. They would have spoken Aramaic like Jesus did. They were like in the homeland. The Hellenistic Jews were Greek Jews, so they grew up outside of Palestine. They would have spoken uh, the Greek language, and they were probably visiting on a pilgrimage, or maybe they retired there later in life. Uh, so these two groups, they both believed in Christ. They had Christ in common, but they had substantial differences just culturally in how they saw the world. They spoke a different language, for instance. So what that meant is they probably worshiped at different synagogues. There was a Greek-speaking synagogue and an Aramaic-speaking synagogue. The Hebraic Jews saw the Hellenistic Jews as liberal. They thought, man, these guys just don't care enough about holiness. They don't care enough about righteousness. They don't talk enough about sin. The Hellenistic Jews saw the Hebraic Jews as narrow-minded, very self-centered culturally, and like, these people don't care about any of the rest of the world. All they care about is their own thing. Now, I know that these sorts of arguments, like, they sound really antiquated to evolved people like us, you know, like, we, like it's hard to really picture, like, an argument at church where one person's like, talk more about sin, and the other person's like, talk more about acceptance. Like, just... 
just try to picture it, right? <laughs> I mean, this happens all the time, right? I mean, 2,000 years later, we're having the same arguments. It never goes away. And that's not what the Bible says, is here's how to make all those arguments go away. Every time I study this, it affirms something in me, that this is just the way it's going to be. These arguments will always be with us, and what it means to be a community of faith is learning how to navigate them well, not doing away with them. That is not success. And I find it a little comforting that the early church who saw Jesus still fought over the same stuff we did. I mean, like in a depressing sort of way, it's comforting. Um, now, the specific accusation here is the Hellenistic Jews felt like that their widows weren't getting as much food as the widows from the Hebrew, uh, the, the Hebraic Jews. Let me give you a little context for that. Uh, you, you may know this, the ancient world at this time in history was almost exclusively patriarchal in orientation. And what that meant is that men held almost all of the power and women had very few rights. Unfortunately, what that meant is for many women, the only pathway to like health and flourishing was to find a good man. And if that man died, most cultures had uh, inheritance laws that were written that would cut the widow out of the inheritance if there was any male relative still alive for that man. And so it was incredibly hard in the first century to be a widow. Um, for Jewish widows, it was slightly easier. It was still hard, but it was easier. And it was easier because God again and again commanded his people to look after the widows, right? He's, he understands that they're at a disadvantage based on the cultures that they are in. And so he says, listen, as my people, take care of these women. And that's what the early church was doing. Um, Side note, this is something worth understanding about our Bible. Like uh, just men, women, issues in general, we understand this. The Bible was written out of cultures that were patriarchal in orientation. And so 2,000 years later, by God's grace, men and women are slightly more equal. Uh, but when the Bible was written, they were not in most of those cultures. And so it's sometimes hard to really kind of put ourselves back because we're reading, uh, you know, 2,000 years after the fact, but to really put ourselves in the he head of the original readers of the Bible, what we need to. The context of Scripture is really important, and this is what we need to know about our Bible. Compared to the cultures that it was written in, the Bible is without exception ahead of the cultures that it was written in on issues of equality for women. Right? It may look a little bit uh, antiquated to us from where we sit, but in the cultures in which it was written, it is without exception ahead of the cultures it was written in. And the treatment of widows is just one example. These women had few rights, and without exception, God says, listen, my people, I'm pushing you towards the sort of equality that these women need to flourish in life. There's still a lot of work to be done, obviously. In Acts chapter 6, it's not like, hey, we did it. Um, but that's why God's people, followers of Jesus, are taking care of these widows, is because they understood that that was their role. Now, eventually, God's solution, I think, is to bring equality between the genders, the, the, to give these women rights. That's what God wanted. But in the meantime, he told his people, look after them, because that's what God's people have always done, is we have found the people who are minimized and marginalized in culture, and we take care of them, and we tell them that they matter to God. And so that's what God's people are doing here. That's our heritage. And yet, even in that effort, there's still, it's natural, it's human nature, nature that there would be some inequality. And there was some, and the Hellenistic Jews were saying, hey, we're being overlooked here. They bring that to the apostles. Look at what the apostles do. Verse 2. 
So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, don't hear what they're not saying. They're not saying preaching is better than waiting on tables. That's not what they're saying. They're just saying that like preaching and the word of God and, and carrying that torch was something Jesus gave us. There was no one else at this point, right? Like they, like if a meteor hit that room, the gospel would be gone. They were the only ones who really understood this. And they said, listen, we can't set that aside to do this task. So they have a plan. Verse three, brothers and sisters, Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So simple solution. Let's put someone in charge of this. Let us empower someone else to solve this problem. And they create a role that is specifically designed to make sure no one is left out. And that's what they do. Verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Look at what happened. Verse 7, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Those sentences are connected to this conflict. Somehow, the way they handled that conflict won over people who were watching. And over the next 300 years, they would convince the known world and convince the empire of Rome. Here's the truth that I just, I I feel like we need to burn this into our brains because I don't know how many times I think of this, I just forget it again and again and again, but this is the truth. If you heard nothing else this morning, hear this, okay? The world was not convinced that Jesus was real because there wasn't conflict. That's not what happened. Oh, they get along so well. Jesus must be real. No, the world was convinced that Jesus was real because of what they did when there was conflict. That is the difference that we see here. That is why the word of God spread. Let me say it this way. It wasn't that they agreed with each other on everything. That wasn't it. It was the way that they loved when they disagreed that was so convincing to the world. And I'm preaching to myself here because I don't know about you. Sometimes I mistake agreement for unity. Do you ever do that? I mistake agreement for unity all the time. But listen, nothing supernatural is happening when we get along with people we agree with. Like that's literally the easiest thing in the world to do. We just talk about how much we agree and it's just easy, right? That's not what was happening here. We talked a fair amount about this in our Table Manners series. Remember the verse John 13, we kept quoting. Jesus said, hey, the proof that you're my disciples, well, the world will see and say, those are followers of Jesus. It's not that you agree. It's not that there's so much niceness. It's not that there's so much harmony. It's the fact that you love each other. Love is not agreement. Love is not niceness. Love is revealed by what happens after a dispute arose. That's what reveals love. Whatever comes after that is all anyone needs to know about how much we love each other. A dispute arose, and the, the, early, the early church navigated that moment in ways that made the world marvel. You know, for God's people, I think this has always been true. Our make or break moment as the people of God is the moment when we come into conflict with each other. 
It is what we do when a dispute arose that makes or breaks us. And unfortunately, I, I, this is just my opinion, I think for the American church, that moment has been breaking us. That moment has been uh, hurting us. I'm not trying to throw stones. It just seems to me, uh, the way I see it is Christians in America, we struggle with disagreement. We struggle to navigate that in ways that people look at and respect, much less marvel at. I don't know this for sure. Maybe it's because we've held power for too long. I don't know. But somehow, we seem to struggle to navigate those moments when a dispute arises the same way these early believers did. Unless you think that this was an isolated incident, there's at least three major internal conflicts in the book of Acts. And in every single one, the church comes out on top and people watch it and say, wow. And the gospel spreads because of it. What can we learn from these believers? Um, It's an interesting story. How do we become fearless like they are? I mean, is conflict a strategy for advancing the gospel? I don't know. I mean, it kind of that seems to be what happened. I, I would maybe sum it up this way. This is the lesson for me. Staying connected to each other in conflict makes us brave if we lean in, not out. If we lean into it, not out of it. See, when the early church had moments of dispute, you almost see this attitude. It's like they treated it like it was sacred ground for them. And they didn't have the luxury of like, well, I'll just go to the church down the street. I mean, there was just one group. Like, that was all that it was. So they had to press in and they had to figure it out. And we see those conflicted relationships. They actually become the context for transformation and incredible personal growth for these believers. And the same would be true for us if we let it. And those conflicted relationships actually become a context for proving to the world that Jesus lives in us. And I think the same would be true for us if we let it. But what we need to realize is this, that while conflict in relationships is inevitable, I put an if in that sentence, and I put it in all caps because this is true. A dispute is always going to arise. That's unavoidable in our world, but it is totally optional whether or not we lean in and figure that out. It's totally optional whether or not we stay connected. Like no one has to. None of us in this room. There are plenty of options out there. I mean, when conflict arises, we can opt out. We can, there's a million things that we can do, so we just don't even have to deal with it. And that's one of the, the wonderful things about this world is like you don't always have to deal with it, but it also is the curse of our world because with that freedom that we have comes this temptation to opt out too quickly. And if we want the Holy Spirit to grow in us a brave and fearless faith, then we have to be cautious about opting out too quickly. We have to be slower and we have to learn to press in when our relationships struggle. The first believers didn't have much of a choice. You all, we all have a lot of choices, right? But if we want to be brave, I think this is the choice. Staying connected in conflict makes us brave if we lean in. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I want to let you in on a little secret in our church. Like if you're thinking, I'm in, I would like to do that. I'd like to do that here with this congregation. Then there's something that you should know about Pulpit Rock Church. So I, 
think in your mind, take any social, political, or theological issue out there, anything you can picture, anything that like people in our culture are arguing about, right? Just picture that in our mind. What you need to know about our church is we are a big enough church that I promise you on that issue, there are people in this room right now who have totally opposite opinions on that issue. Like, don't look around. That's true. Just, uh, no, 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 no. Yeah. Just st- look at me. Listen, uh, totally opposite opinions. Don't call them out. And listen, I want you to know this. I, I agree with you. I've always agreed with you. Listen, I've always said, you and I, we see eye to eye on everything, right? But there's someone in here who doesn't, who disagrees, who doesn't see eye to eye. If your goal is to go to a church where everyone agrees on everything, like, this is not it. Keep looking. In fact, your best idea is to start your own church and then, (laughs) you know, not let a lot of people in because as soon as you start letting people in, you're going to have the same problem, right? I know there are churches who are like, hey, we all agree. We all sign this confession of faith. We agree. But they don't. If they're made up of human beings, they don't. There's differences and there's conflict. This is what you need to know about us if you're going to be here. Uh, Pulpit Rock is a church of mixed belief, like on so many issues. I know that. We are a church of mixed belief. We're a church of united belief on one issue, and this matters a lot. It's what uh, Peter said in Acts 2 that we read last week. He said, God has made this Jesus who was crucified both Lord and Messiah, and on that we agree, but on so many of the other issues, you're going to see a great deal of diversity on behaviors and attitudes and, and ideas, and what winds up happening is we go to a church like this, and we just kind of assume that, well, you know, they probably view the world the same way that I do. It's certainly easier to assume that than to have to work through all the sort of conflict, but the truth is we are a mixture of belief. Any community of faith is. And what if we all just, we took a deep breath. We said, that's okay. It's okay. It's okay if we don't see eye to eye on everything, right? It's okay. It's okay if we hurt each other's feelings sometimes. I mean, it's not okay to do stuff that is hurtful. But it's okay that that will happen. That's not evidence that something awful is happening. That's evidence that life is happening. It's okay if sometimes we want different things. It's okay if you value something that you don't value and vice versa. It's okay. Because after all, it was God who made us this way. God who gave us all of these differences and this different life experience and these different perspectives. And when you see the early church, you see the same sort of conflicted relationships and the mixed belief that exists there. From the beginning, the early church was a church of mixed belief. And the story of Acts is the story of them working through those differences with brave love. It's not the story of them opting out of those differences. What if together we just decided that we are not going to let agreement be our God. We're not going to opt out when those differences create problems. And instead, we're going to lean in and we're going to stay connected. And even when a dispute arises, we're going to work through it. I mean, that would take bravery. Like, that's counter to this culture in a way that very few things are. I wonder if that wouldn't be convincing to our world. 
What does that look like to lean in? Uh, it's all over the Bible. Matthew 18 is a good place to start. The Bible talks about this stuff a lot. It looks like this. Like when you're frustrated with someone, we kindly address it. Like sometimes we need to just overlook an offense and let it go, right? But other times we just can't. It just hurts. And so we need to go to them and we need to make sure we're not talking about them behind their back. Uh, we know this stuff. We've known it since we were kids, right? It, like uh, we need to make sure we're not sharing our feelings or sharing a prayer request in a way that's going to damage somebody else when they're not in the room. The Bible challenges us. Just go straight to them right away. Don't let bitterness build. Kindly go to them and have the courage to say these three words. I've been hurt. Can we talk about it? The early believers in Acts, it appears that they spoke up right away. And they did it in a way that was kind, that was appropriate. That's one of the reasons why this was a victory for the church. And I know none of us like this when we're carrying around like hurt and frustration with somebody else, but we got to recognize that is an opportunity that we are carrying around in our heart for transformation. It's an opportunity for the a victory for the people of God. And so we've got to lean into it. Now, maybe you're on the other side of this. This is worth saying, too. It also looks like this. When you suspect someone is frustrated with you, you are minding your own business, and you're like, I suspect they're mad at me for something. We kindly pursue them. In Matthew 6, Jesus even talks about you've got to leave worship and go find that person. He says, stop worshiping God if you're at church. Stop worshiping God. Go find that person and say, hey, I have this sense that maybe there's something between us. Can we talk about it? I'm here to listen, right? Jesus says that is more important to God than our worship of him. That's an astounding statement. It takes a lot of brave love to do that. Like this is true. We'll just confess it together. None of us like that, right? None of us like having to do that. But it's a transformational opportunity. The Bible also talks about this. Maybe there's this possibility. You and somebody else, you just cannot see eye to eye. You've tried. You've talked it out. It's just going nowhere. Uh, well, when you're stuck in a relationship, we ask for help from wise people, right? That's what the Hellenistic Jews were doing. And because they asked for help from the right people, it was a victory. And this isn't like talking about someone you're frustrated with. This is an acknowledgement that, hey, I am a part of this problem and we are struggling to see our way through it. Would you help us? Can we share it with you? We've got to accept this, that if you are a good-hearted person who loves Jesus, there's going to be moments where you are stuck with somebody else and you cannot get through it and you have to have the humility to ask for help together in those moments. Those are not moments of failure. Those are transformational moments. Now, one last thought, and I think it's, it should be obvious at this point, but I want to say it anyway. Like, isn't there with all of these things, there's the behavioral side of this, here's what you do, but there's a real heart issue, isn't there? There's a humility issue before we would do any of these behaviors, right? And I think it's just this simple question, is my heart willing to let the Holy Spirit shape me through conflict in relationships? And it's easy to just say no. I'll just keep moving. There's a willingness a willingness to struggle, to see your own face. None of us like it, and I think that's why we carry around this human fantasy that like one day we'll get there, right? One day our relationships will just get there, and it, like there'll be harmony, and we'll just work together really well, and like the, they'll be kind to me, and I'll be kind to them, and it's going to happen. 
Like that is a human fantasy. God does not share in that fantasy. That fantasy actually is something that makes us fearful and weak because it gives us this expectation that there's something wrong every time a dispute arises. That is not God's dream for us. What makes us brave is embracing God's dream. And that is not a life devoid of conflict and disputes. That is not in your destiny if you're following Jesus. It's a life where we learn to lean in with love despite disputes. That's in your destiny if you're following Jesus. That's what God wants for you. And the question is just really simple. Are we willing? Are we willing to allow the Holy Spirit? Do we have the humility to wrestle through this stuff? And will we let the world see that Jesus is alive in us because of the way that we treat each other in conflict? Or will we opt out, which is always an option? I want to close by just giving you some time to engage with the Holy Spirit. I think that's an important part of this. Um, We talk about a lot of stuff here. We preach on all sorts of topics. Um, There's something about this. Like, this is the hard stuff, right? I mean, there's all sorts of other stuff that I'd love to talk about. But like, this stuff, I'm just like, ugh. Do I still have to do that? I'm 43. Do I still have to do that stuff? And I think this is why a lot of believers don't experience transformation in their relationships because they opt out here. That's rampant in church. Uh, The early church did the opposite, though. They leaned in here. And at Pulpit Rock, we've been trying to lean in for years. And I just want to remind us of who we are and challenge us to keep walking in it. I want to give you some space, though, to do the hard work, to do the hard stuff with the Holy Spirit and just ask Him if there's something that He wants you to do. Maybe there's someone you need to talk to today about something. Maybe there's someone that you need to forgive. It's been long enough. That bitterness has sat there long enough. You need to start forgiving. Maybe there's something you need to confess. Maybe there's something you need to repair with a person and you need to go to them and just say, I I think we're off. Can we talk about it? Or maybe there's just that basic heart question of saying, yes, Holy Spirit, I'm willing for you to do this work in me. You know, brave faith lies on the other side of that stuff. (laughs) I wish it wasn't true. If you have faith in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. Can I just give you a little bit of space to interact with him over these?
we thank you that your dream for us is not easy. How disappointing that would be, God. Thank you for dreaming for us a big dream of radical transformation. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit to lead us there. Holy Spirit, give us courage. Give us courage when our differences create conflict. And give us a brave sort of love. In Jesus' name, amen.